It's the 27th of August, 2016, and this is episode 306. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Let's Talk Bitcoin. And on today's show, we're joined by the other host of LTB, Stephanie Murphy. Hello. And Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by special guest Gunsir, who's a professor at Cornell University and a writer at Hacking Distributed, to kind of discuss some uh, interesting ideas about how to better secure Bitcoins from theft. But uh, kind of before we get into that, um, Stephanie, can you kind of bring us up to speed on what's recently happened that's put this back into our minds of how you secure Bitcoins from theft? Yes, recently there was a very large Bitcoin theft or hack of uh, the exchange Bitfinex. Total losses were about 119,000 Bitcoins, or that was about $60 million. They um, still have not figured out, I think, exactly what happened with that theft. There's some speculation, obviously, about <laughs> whether it was an inside job or, or outside job or whatever. But uh, regardless, it happened. We're working with BitGo as a security measure. Um, and they had multi-sig accounts for their customers, but somehow the thief still managed to take the Bitcoins from them. Now, it started to get interesting after the fact when Bitfinex started talking about socializing the losses <laughs> and giving all of their customers basically a haircut on their deposits uh, to try to make up for this theft. What we're here to talk about today, I think, is every aspect of this very interesting case, but especially focusing on Bitcoin security and how this maybe could have, could have been avoided with our guest today. So, Gun, I read a number of different ideas for how you know, we could better improve the state of usability right, of Bitcoin in a secure fashion. And one of the things about it that's been very core to the value proposition since very early on is the idea that transactions are irreversible. And that, you know, it's, it's very much like a cash transaction. Once you've sent it to someone, then you've sent it and uh, you can't unsend it. And so that, make, that you know, has a lot of really positive things about it because it means that in commerce, you can be very sure of things. And it means that you can have tokens on the, you know, in the digital world that can really represent ownership because of that kind of cash-like characteristic. But it also means that when people, you know, essentially rob the bank, they're taking cash out, right? And so it's much more fungible and much easier to uh, kind of work with. Um, than it would be if, say, they were stealing, you know, money via bank wire, and the bank could simply cancel it before, you know, this uh, period of time has ex has expired. So you had kind of an interesting idea with Vault, and uh, rather than butchering your uh, idea, I'd kind of like uh, you to explain it. So, uh, so tell us kind of what the problem is with the existing system, and what your what your idea of a solution is. Uh, sure. So as you pointed out, I think it's absolutely critical for the Bitcoin value proposition that Bitcoins be fungible and that transactions are irreversible. So anybody who messes with that is risks the, the corruption of the entire value proposition. So um, it was widely thought, and even um, you know, my group also thought this, that this meant immediately that we were always at the mercy of these hackers, that hacking would always be part of the Bitcoin ecosystem, that hackers, once they get a uh, hold of your keys, well, then they would use the fungibility slash irreversibility um, to just take our money. And there was absolutely nothing you could do. But we thought a little bit more about what to do about this. And, um, and the situation is not as dire as one would imagine on, uh, on first thought. And um, what we did is uh, we uh, proposed a new scheme called Covenants. Um, and uh, what a covenant does is it restricts the shape of the transaction that redeems your money. 
Uh, this is a, uh, an idea that initially was discussed by a bunch of people, including Greg Maxwell. We ended up uh, sort of exploring it in full and um, coming up with uh, a pretty interesting set of use cases for it. One very exciting use case is this notion of a vault. So if I can restrict what kinds of transactions can follow my transaction, then I can set up what we're calling these things, what we're calling a vault. Now, what's a vault? Um, a vault is a personal storage address uh, that is for you and you alone. Okay, so these vault money in your vault is for only you to take out. And um, every vault has two keys. It has a regular unvaulting key and a recovery key. So what you do is when you have money that you don't want to, to be stolen, and when you have money that you would ordinarily put in a cold, cold wallet, you instead put it in a vault. Um, what we end up seeing time and time again is money that should be in a cold wa wallet ends up getting stolen because somebody gets the keys to the cold wallet. Well, with vaults, that transaction to empty out the cold wallet is reversible, but it's only that one that's reversible. So here's how it would work from a user perspective. I have some cash. I would like to protect it. I'm not going to need it uh, on a daily basis. It's not my daily expending money. Uh, it's just my long-term holding money. I put it in a vault, and if I want to use it, I do an unvault transaction. It's a special kind of transaction that moves the money from my vault to a regular hot wallet. And from there, I spend it. And if I spend it from the hot wallet, it's just like every other Bitcoin transaction. It's irreversible, it's fungible, etc. Um, but the, that little period of time um, allows us to do this magic trick, which is if I'm sitting at home and somebody breaks into my server, steals my cold key, or whatever they do, you know, they somehow have placed key loggers and all sorts of things, you know, whatever it is that these hackers do. Uh, they've somehow exfiltrated my key. They have access to my cold wallet. If it starts to move my coins, I can use my second key, the recovery key, to reverse that transaction alone. I can say, that's my wallet, and I have a superior key that will undo this uh, motion that you just did with my coins, and it will revert that cash back to me. Now, the next question you might ask is, go ahead, Stephanie, I, I think I can, I can predict what you're going to ask, but go ahead. Yeah, well, so I was going to ask, what, what is the time limit on how long you have to use the recovery key? Oh, uh, that's entirely at your discretion. So um, if you're a day trader, you want to go to sleep, and uh, when, while you sleep, you don't want your money to move. Well, then you set a short timeout, say eight hours. Um, if you're going to go disappear on a hiking trip uh, on the Appalachian Trail, you put it up for you know three months or whatever. Um, it's entirely up to you. A reasonable choice, in, in my opinion, would be about 24 hours. Uh, so hmm. in case you need cash, you take it out in 24 hours. Uh, during that time, somebody should be watching the blockchain for the movement of your coins. So around vaults, you need a, a little bit of additional infrastructure so that if you see the coins move, you can take action and, and bring in your recovery key. So this is different from a multi-sig type of transaction because it actually introduces a new type of operation. The unvaulting and vaulting is a reversible action using your recovery key. It can be time limited according to discretion. When you said, said there's uh, additional infrastructure needed, thing that is actually could be built into the Bitcoin protocol Protocol itself, or do you need like the help of a website or an API to do this? You would end up using 
something like an external service. So all it takes is just uh, you know, any old blockchain explorer uh, that watches the blockchain and um, and will hopefully give you a ring on your phone or whatever it is, however you, you are contacted, uh, to let you know that your vaulted coins are on the move. So um, think of it as an external service. It's not part of the protocol. We don't have to complicate that anymore. Um, it's just one opcode to be added to the protocol and it, uh, it allows us to implement vaults. And um, these additional watchers or whatever it is, guards that watch the vaults are add-on services just like every other block explorer cool well i have to say i already like it what were you what were you thinking i was going to ask you before um yeah good question so i i was thinking that uh, the question you'd ask would be what happens when i lose my recovery key as well so um, ah. th- that can happen you know we're all human um so in the old days before vaults it's it suffices to lose one key uh vaults give you the second additional key and um, but you know there is no limit to human stupidity. We we all I you know I'm, I've committed <laughs> my you know fill of like stupid things. Um, so it happens that people lose all their keys. Um, and in that case, then you can use the recovery key to burn the money. So you can't get it back because there is now no way of distinguishing who's the hacker and who's you. You both have all the same credentials. Uh, but you can say, okay, I can't have it, but you can't have it either. So that's actually a pretty powerful primitive, it turns out, because at that point, they're really like, fundamentally, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing distinguishing you from, from the other fellow. Yeah, I, I actually, that's really interesting because I remember Satoshi, like in the very early days, one of his forum posts, he was talking about that, um, the, having the ability to basically do that ultimate nuclear option of, well, and have him, but you can't have him either. <laughs> Although at the time, there was no way to implement that. So it's actually, that's actually a pretty cool trick, because once you have this, think of it from the hacker's perspective, right? So there is some really juicy target uh, exchange or whatever, and they're keeping a lot of money in a cold wallet. Normally, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of people who have the ability to hack to, into these systems, who end up you know, stealing substantial amounts of cash from exchanges every so often, right? These things are, have been happening for six years on a continual basis. If they knew that they could never get to that cash, then it's a different world. Then, then it's just like, well, why would I bother? Why would I burn my zero-day bugs on a, on, a, on a fool's errand where I know I won't be able to benefit? So it might really change the scenery fundamentally. The hackers might just say, you know, I used to be able to just, as soon as I had the key, I used to be able to have the cash. And now that's no longer the case. Maybe this is not where I should exert my effort. Maybe I should go pick a softer target elsewhere. So um, at the moment, Bitcoin is the universal bug bounty, right? For, the, for anywhere on the web. If you know how to break into someone's system, well, you use that and uh, you make money if you get the Bitcoins. And suddenly that equation might change. That when people know that, well, you can get to Bitcoins, you can't have them. Well, that might actually incentivize them to, uh, to, to start looking into other things and, and leave Bitcoins alone. I'd like to look at uh, one of the concepts we started this conversation with, which is this concept of transaction irreversibility. And I think there's a, a broad misunderstanding of what that actually means. This is the, the one thing that don't want to mess up. Mm-hmm. We'll see that and often see it as a weakness in the system 
And I've, I've learned to look at things that people identify as a weakness and potentially see those as the greatest strength because they seem to be the things that are most different from traditional systems. So one of the things I've been looking at, that Bitcoin is the only system we have that delivers hard promises. Everything else, whether it's a payment in a bank or a check or a credit payment, can be reversed. It can be reversed by court order. It can be reversed by extrajudicial process. It can be reversed in many different ways by many different counterparties. And that's the whole of counterparty risk. But Bitcoin can't. Uh, it's a hard promise. But I think people misunderstand because there's a difference between transaction irreversibility and payment irreversibility because Bitcoin transactions are not actually payments. They're programs. And what you're saying is the program can't be reversed. And we have a word for that. That's immutability. But the program itself can have an escape hatch. It can have a refund clause within it. And you can't reverse the program, but you can execute the refund clause. We can do that with multisig. We can do that with check lock time verify. You've described this pattern with uh, vaults and covenants, which I think is extremely powerful. I read recently an article on Medium. Somebody else had a similar thing that didn't even require an upgrade to the scripting code, which involved lock time and uh, temporary keys with pre-signed transactions. Um, this pattern seems to be something that's developing very rapidly. The idea that we will use the immutability and the irreversibility of the transaction program, but that doesn't mean that we can't program a payment that itself has a reversible or refund clause. Absolutely, Andreas. So we actually ran into this misunderstanding uh, when we first unveiled the vault idea. So people thought, well, you know, you guys seem to be breaking everything that we stand for. Uh, how can you reverse a transaction in Bitcoin that makes no sense, da 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 da. And uh, they didn't understand that this was a very, very limited uh, uh, facility. It's intended and it can only be used or abused by you. And it's not something where I pay you and I, I reverse that because I, it's not possible to pay out of a vault. You would, you would know it's coming from a vault and you wouldn't accept that payment. So, um, so indeed, so anything that we do in this space has to respect this. And, um, and you're right that we're actually using the um, immutability and the programmability of the underlying system um, to build something new in it, a very limited clause that says this is how, you know, th this is an escape hatch in case of an emergency. Um, and only in that case can you use the second key and uh, only to transfer the funds to this other address, da 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 da. So it's, uh, it, you're absolutely right on both fronts that, um, that we're using the uh, Bitcoin's uh, you know, most important uh, principle, which I think is irreversibility, in a very restricted sense. And indeed, this is what makes the system cool, and we would never want to break that. What are the arguments I've been making about this that I think people are missing and why this is a really strong feature in Bitcoin? Is that if you have a hard promise, an immutable transaction program, you can use that to simulate a softer promise. But if you have a mushy system that can't guarantee any hard promises, you can't simulate a hard promise. So we can soften a hard promise, but you can never harden a mushy system. A banking system as it is, is mushy. There's third-party, counterparty risk everywhere. None of the promises are hard. Nothing is guaranteed. And that means it's very easy to reverse transactions for merchants and get refunds and all of those mushy things. But it also means that um, you know, your money isn't really yours. 
Uh, and I, I much rather like a system where you have hard promises that you can programmatically soften to a degree that you want with absolute precision as to how softer you make that promise without sacrificing anything. Indeed. So if we look at, uh, so my background is in distributed systems. Uh, in distributed systems, there are sort of many different axes, many different considerations. Um, one of them, for example, is consistency. It's always possible to build a system that's eventually consistent on top of a, of a strongly consistent system. Um, but it's essentially impossible to build a strongly consistent system on top of an eventually consistent system. So what you're saying is the financial analog. If the financial system gives you only a very mushy, very soft, uh, highly you know, reversible, highly malleable uh, underlying primitive for transferring money, then you're not going to be able to build something on top that's any harder than what the underlying primitive is. And, um, and so that very much limits the kinds of uh, transactions you can build on top, the kinds of applications you can build on top. Um, the, the, sort of the, the properties of the underlying layer, they, they can be weakened, but it's typically very, very, very difficult to strengthen them along just about every consideration. So consistency is one of them, fault tolerance is one of them, etc. If the underlying system you're building on is not fault tolerant, um, you can build fault tolerance on top by maybe, you know, by doing a bunch of tricks that involve multiple systems, etc. But it's, it, it, you can't do it in system. So, um, so this, is, this is a common theme. And uh, indeed, you want the underlying primitive to be as strong as possible. And uh, then you can soften it up according to your application. That direction is easy. The other one is often impossible. Good. I wanted to uh, talk about another pattern that I'm uh, seeing emerging here, which is very interesting to me. And this is the concept of outsourced diligence. Um, you mentioned a specific use case, which is you have your vault and maybe you're uh, going on vacation or something like that. And there's a possibility a fraudulent transaction may happen, and that needs to be noticed by someone. Now, I've seen this pattern before, and one place I've seen the pattern is in the use in payment channels, where if uh, uh, one example being Lightning Network, and what they're talking about there is if one of the parties tries to cheat by unilaterally closing the channel with a prior state transaction that is advantageous to them, then you have a period of time, uh, and usually that's maybe a day or something like that, during which you can drop uh, a transaction into the blockchain to short circuit that and end up taking all of the money in the channel. So that's a, the big penalty that's hanging over anyone who tries to cheat in, in Lightning Network. And recently on the mailing list, they've been discussing outsourcing that uh, due diligence, and they've developed a very interesting technique, which allows you to have someone else watch the channel for you without actually giving them information about what the channel state is. So they, they you can outsource the diligence without losing any privacy. Can you envision developing that pattern for vaults where um, you could outsource the diligence without revealing anything? Uh, sure. So all that somebody has to watch is a particular address. And um, it's a vaulted address. It's going to be uh, possible to see that it's vaulted. Um, at the moment, at the very lowest level, Bitcoin does not provide privacy of the amounts. And um, so transactions are not confidential at the moment. But the only thing that we need is, is to see if any funds are in motion from a particular address. We don't care about the amount. We don't have to reveal it. So... Um, 
if one were to use confidential transactions, the same pattern would work just fine. And uh, you could easily imagine services just like the Lightning Network example or the duplex payment channels also use the same pattern where um, there's a, there could easily be a third entity, a third party entity that just sort of sits on the network, watches what's going on. And uh, when something happens, then it triggers some actions. And uh, in this case, at least something is just uh, funds in motion. I think this, uh, this could actually be a very interesting business for some entity. I can imagine a future in which you have millions of uh, channels, vault addresses, other multi-sig entities that need to be watched 24 hours a day for um, exception events and that can be watched with privacy based on bloom filters or transaction hash prefixes or various other mechanisms we're seeing being developed in this space where you could have someone whose job it is to sit on the blockchain and watch for millions of these uh, exception events and get paid a small fee if they catch something. Uh, you could actually have an interesting business there. Uh, absolutely. So um, on a slightly different topic, the, one of the things that actually sort of got me excited about this whole uh, vault idea um, comes from the fact that I never found Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's a very cool technology. It's got all sorts of awesome features. But one thing it isn't at the moment is it's not calm, tranquil technology. The whole time I have Bitcoins, at the back of my mind, I am slightly cautious and slightly unnerved about, you know, did I do something wrong? I just changed phones. Where is my hot wallet okay? Did I transfer the key? Do I have all the backups? It's not calm technology. And um, I don't know if any of your listeners uh, remember um, in the 90s, there was um, a fellow by the name of Mark Weiser. And um, he started this, uh, this entire area called ubiquitous computing. And he used to talk about uh, uh, sort of this, this sort of vision of computing when the computing devices are tranquil. They make you feel calm. They make you feel good about yourself. They make you feel like, okay, I'm in command. And he used to say, well, the current technology that we have isn't conducive to that, right? You have to be constantly diligent. It's doubly so, even not though. It's, it's orders of magnitude more sort of unnerving when you've got real cash on the line with Bitcoin. And, um, and if, if we could sort of get this kind of feature where the money at, at uh, you know, money that is sort of sitting somewhere is not at risk, and uh, if you could actually sort of defer the, the job of watching the blockchain to a third party, you could actually go sit on the beach as I did this afternoon and, um, you know, and enjoy yourself without having to really worry about what's happening to my coins. So, um, and I can't imagine the exchange owners, like that has to be such a tough job. Like, I don't know how you run an exchange these days and not feel like, you know, oh my God, everyone's out to get me because everyone is out to get you. And, um, and not feel like, oh my God, did I, you know, did I do this wrong? Did I do that wrong? Is there an insider attack? Did I, was I too mean to a worker of mine who's going to leak my keys and so forth? And so, so we need some technology to put everybody's minds at ease and we can just sort of relax and be like, okay, key management used to be a problem for the first six years and uh, is no longer. Right? We, we know how to fix this. We, we used to defer 
all security issues to the underlying platform. We used to just say, well, it's somebody else's problem, but it always ended up becoming our problem, right? There's a hackable machine somewhere. Well, then some somebody, you know, prances in, uh, they jump around from machine to machine. Before you know it, they have your keys. And voila, we have a 60 plus million dollar hack, uh, you know, as we saw in Bitfinex. So, uh, so we need some of these mechanisms to make the technology calm again, and um, and it would be awesome, I think, to be able to defer some of this uh, this watchfulness to some other party who is going to make you who's going to take the pressure off of you. I don't. I want to be my bank, but I don't want to be diligent like a bank twenty four seven. I want to be able to have somebody else take that over from me. Well, let's uh, break down for our audience kind of the, the broader picture of what we've learned from the Bitfinex hack, which I think is something that we keep having to relearn, right? I, I looked at uh, exchanges as uh, serving different needs for different uh, users. Uh, there's the very basic, I need to convert from a national currency into Bitcoin or from Bitcoin into a national currency. Um, which may be something that happens infrequently or only for small amounts of money. And I think, honestly, that's a purpose that exchanges serve for most of their users, uh, not necessarily by, by the amount, uh, by volume, but in terms of user numbers. Someone who's sending money abroad or wants to make a single payment or wants to acquire a bit of Bitcoin before moving it into a, a hardware wallet or something like that, that basic exchange function. There is absolutely no reason on earth why you would leave money on an exchange and use it as a wallet and a hot wallet of that if, you, if that's the primary function you need. You get your money in, you convert it, you get your money out, right? So I think there, for the vast majority of users, the, the basic adage, your keys, your Bitcoin, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And if you trust a hot wallet, sooner or later, you're going to lose money. Um, Unfortunately, that's not all an exchange does. There's other categories of users. There's uh, merchants and corporations that are converting money much more frequently. There's people who are converting very large amounts of money. And there's also people who are doing margin trading, day trading, and high liquidity velocity trading, algorithmic trading, et cetera, et cetera. And they need to keep balances ready and very quick to move. Um, so you can't really say don't store any money on the exchange for many of those use cases. It simply doesn't work that way. We've seen that multisig isn't enough. Do you think that uh, vaults and payment channels and other technologies are going to start helping those types of users? Partly so. I think uh, there's still day traders. There are downtimes. So, um, you know, a day trader sleeps. A day trader goes on vacation. A day trader, there are periods of time when they're out of the market. And um, we need to be able to cover those cases. As for hot wallet protection, um, there are, there's still some hope on the horizon. I think one of the main issues that we see with exchanges today is that they're all centralized. And so they serve as a centralized uh, point of vulnerability. A single flaw ends up uh, being able to empty out uh, large numbers of wallets. So, um, uh, so I think if we were to go to a decentralized structure for, um, for the exchanges, uh, decentralized architecture for the exchanges is going to help alleviate some of these other, other additional sort of uh, highly complicated cases where you want to have the money on hand, but you don't want it to be at risk. So it's, uh, that's, uh, that's a tougher case. Um, vaults don't handle this, but decentralization of exchanges would handle this. Vaults help with money when it's not in motion. 
Uh, do you think payment channels um, or state channels, as they're more generically called, might like things like Lightning Network might actually provide ways of um, managing order books and liquidity between multiple participants without using custodial wallets? That's a very high level. I think my initial reaction is I just don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. So I happen to think very highly about the uh, the uh, the duplex channel work. Uh, I was on the PhD committee of Christian Decker, who, de who developed them. Um, and I think very highly of Lightning Network. Um, but I don't know what the emergent network will look like. I don't know how uh, people will, will manage their financial relationships. Um, that emergent network is not... Uh, it's not Bitcoin. It uses Bitcoin syntax. It uses Bitcoin transactions, but it's a different beast entirely on top. And I don't know how it will develop. We might very well find ourselves in a hub and spoke model um, where it's just you and a financial entity and uh, you trust, you don't trust them. You, you have a payment channel open to them and everybody goes through just a couple of those and um and i don't know you know so that's a different that's one model or we might find ourselves in a universe where there's a very rich network and um that's a different model i'm not i'm just not sure andreas um it's going to be interesting to live and see we have seen some so people who do forensic analysis blockchain forensics they have looked at you know what kinds of people trade with who you know at the address level they don't really know the people but they at least know the addresses the money flow between addresses and um, it does seem like there it's there are many uh, there, there are hubs um, and so the natural inclination might be that the the the, the payment channels or or state channels uh, will end up um, with a network that has um, um, has has these hubs that are actually well recognized exchange like entities, and they are the bridges over which money flows. I, I don't know. Um, so we'll see how it pans out. I am a, I'm cautiously optimistic about how it will turn out. Well, I think the, the the main argument there, which we we see playing out again again, is what does it replace? And it doesn't replace. Um, on blockchain decentralized uh, transaction, what it replaces is what we have today, which is off blockchain, single centralized database, hot wallet state. And I, I'd much rather see a semi decentralized duplex payment channel state network replacing a single centralized database, which is far more vulnerable. But certainly, I mean, it's that's that's what's fun about this, right? It's this is the most excited, exciting space of applied cryptography we've seen in decades. That is absolutely true. So cryptography, I think, came to its own when money came into, into the scene. And, uh, and Bitcoin made this area, just invigorated the area. People were solving really fringe, really um, you know, interesting from a theoretical or academic perspective problems, but, uh, but Bitcoin suddenly made it all practical. Um, and you're right, uh, this is a question of what does it replace? But really, maybe the other question is, what kind of a model do we evolve towards? Um, are, are users able to even have a mental model that is two tiers? Do they understand on-chain versus level two? Um, I don't know. And uh, maybe the user interface will be, I don't know what the user interface will look like. I haven't seen any actual working example yet uh, that's practically deployed. It's, it might well um, evolve the entire network towards using solely layer two. And, um, and then I don't know what happens then. And what does that layer two look like?
What is the emergent uh, emergent network? I, it's just hard to guess at this point. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Stay tuned for the second half of our conversation with Goon on next week's show. Then the week after, Stephanie and I are joined by Zach, the host of the Bitcoin.com podcast, to talk about the OneCoin scam. Content for episode 306 was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, Goon, and Adam. This episode was edited by Adam and featured music by Jared Rubens. The magic word for today's episode is Vault. That's V-A-U-L-T. You know what to do. Send questions or comments to Adam at Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. See you next time.